Hello dear people and welcome to Out to Lunch where I take someone utterly brilliant for a slap up meal, we chat and naturally we record the proceedings for your enjoyment, although to be fair we have a lovely time too. My guest today holds a fairly unique place in popular culture. He hosts mainstream TV shows, the sort that get very big viewing figures, yet his background is in hard-hitting, often political stand-up comedy. He's also presented a number of documentaries on some very challenging subjects close to his heart and he's had the ear of a few very influential politicians. He's presented Fame Academy, Love Island, Sport Relief and The Breakfast Show on BBC Radio 2 and on the other side of the coin, my dad, The Peace Deal and Me, coinciding with the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and 100 years of union, exploring how events of the past are shaping the future of Northern Ireland. Today, complete with what I believe we call explicit language, do listen later if you're in the car with the kids, we talk about flying from Ireland to LA just for brunch, it was worth it, having dinners in pyjamas with Mo Molan, and how Des O'Connor disowned him. It's comedian and TV personality, Patrick Keelty. The security guy goes, which one of you guys owns this bag? And it's my bag. There's a handgun in the middle of the bag. And they turn to Des O'Connor and go, do you know... I've only just met Pat, I'm not right. <laughs> so from being like the showbiz pally pally, Des is going, I don't know who this Irish fucker is. So for this episode, I've come to Grays Inn Road in London, just down the road from the ITN headquarters to a restaurant called Otto's, opened by a great man called Otto Topassi. And really it's a, a temple to French classicism. It does the sort of dishes almost nobody does anymore. It's even got a duck press. Look that dish up. But anyway, Paddy Kilty knows his wines, he likes his food. And I didn't want to waste this on someone who was merely interested in a lettuce leaf because I can guarantee we are going to be fed today and fed properly and there will be wine involved. It could get messy. Let's go in. Paddy! This place is magnificent. It is magnificent. <laughs> Lovely to see you, dear. You've met Otto, whose name is above the door. Yes. Um, and will lead us through. Good afternoon, Patrick. There we are. Welcome Thank you, Otto. Um, can I have your drink? Would you like a drink? Uh, what are you having, Jay? What about our something? Lovely. Yeah. Perfect. Let's do that. We're doing that. You've talked about growing up in Dundrum's a beautiful idyllic childhood. Mm. And comedy being there as a backbeat, sitting in the car with your dad, listening to filthy tapes. Billy Connolly. Billy Connolly. Yeah. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> Could you do that? Because we're not going to get him now. We know that. Um... <laughs> it's that thing, isn't it? Where I remember listening to, to, to Billy Carlin and he goes, There's something magical about fuck off. There's no ambiguity to it. <laughs> it's you know, fuck off sets its own context. You know, it's, it's why you never read fuck off, he hinted. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like from one of his great, and, and those were the tapes that you'd have been listening to when you were sort of like, you know, 13 and 14 with your dad. And the idea, you know, of a man in his early 40s and you 14 sitting there listening to the same thing. Oh, that's wow. a for you, there we go. The, uh, well, what should we have? The souffle au fromage looks good. We've got a bit of T-bone action there, don't we? We do. What are you going to have? So I think I am going to have the scallops to start. Yeah. 
And then I'm going to get steak tartare, particularly because they do a lot of table-side stuff. The wife loves a steak tartare. Does She'd she? be very jealous. And it looks like we're doing smoked salmon before a little bit, just yeah. a taster. As an appetizer. Okay. Stop. Your good health, Jay. And to you. There you go. It's uh, champagne before one o'clock. There's very little wrong with that. The thing I find amazing, looking at your story, is uh, your father is killed when you're just before your 17th birthday. Yep. You set up one of, if not the first, comedy club in Belfast. How old were you? 21. It's very little time between those two things. Although it's an ocean of time in a young person's life. I had been doing some little bits of comedy from when I was about 15. It's not that. It's that your material, very early on, was taking on the troubles at a time when, to describe it as a live subject, was... Very, you know, it very much was. Context is everything. You're asked to host a comedy club every week. Belfast, smaller place, regular audience, can't do the same stick. So I'm writing topical stuff from the news. The news was the troubles. The stuff that that audience wanted to hear was what they were living. She didn't think you were doing anything extraordinary. I remember when CNN turned up outside the club and they did that classic, you know, uh, while Belfast burns, young people laugh. Today, downtown, (laughs) Tuesday, Patrick Healy, whose own father was murdered in the Troubles, is the host of the Empire Laughs Back Comedy Club. And wow, do they like this material. And you're going, okay. And I kicked back from that. I'm going, this is a fucking cliche. And they were trying to sort of portray you as some type of comedy Batman, you know, which was, his own father was murdered, and so he went into this comedy cave and came out and put this cape on (laughs) and then did jokes to the paramilitaries and, ooh, that'll show you for killing my dad. But it wasn't like that. I was like a comedy comper, which was doing And you needed material. I needed material. However, there was one point where a guy came up to me and said, you know, Oh, we like that joke, but we're not sure about that. The, you know, the boys aren't sure about that joke. So, uh, are we talking IRA? Yeah, yeah we're talking like paramilitaries. They're like, you know, going, we're not sure and about that one. Is that the worst review you've ever had? I mean, was Probably it? not. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Which, which mean, wing of the provisional IRA are you? Well, I'm mostly comedy, <laughs> comedy reviewing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, like we had that thing where there was all those splinter groups where, you know, it was... Uh, there's kind of the real IRA, the surreal IRA, you know. I can't believe it's not the oh, IRA. Yeah. Like, there's all these sort of things. What, what was your response to this? When they're basically, t- t- they're trying to scare you off doing certain yeah. games. Yeah, and I just said, look, I'm a very average comedian here. I said, but if you want to turn me into some type of fucking hero, have a go. I said, I genuinely don't think popping a comedian is kind of great press. At which point, how's smoked salmon? Amazing. Is beautiful, isn't it? Amazing. So there not, th- this is not my thing. Normally? Normally not. This is excellent. So you, you've, you've just ordered a, a goat's chief souffle, uh, a veal T-bone. Yes. And then we'll get to dessert. Um, how did you take to vegan life in LA, <laughs> Paddy Kilty? <laughs> so there was a, um, there's a restaurant uh, on Melrose called, I think it's called Crossroads. Mm-hmm. Mel- Melrose Avenue being a very hip 
very, very, very cool. hipster place. And this is a place where uh, they were doing the vegan thing, trying to make it be like meat. It kind of worked for a hot second. Cat had been over there. The wife had been over there for a while. So it should be said, your wife, Cat Dealey, yes. had gone off to the States to be uh, incredibly famous on primetime television. Yes. You went there too. And I went there too and wasn't. Uh, <laughs> you'd go for a meal and I'd say, I can't believe they, they remember the special. So they do this thing when they come out in Los Angeles. They go, hi, I'm Brad. I'm going to be looking after you tonight. And what they do is they do this team talk thing where they say, okay, guys, we got some really, really great stuff happening here tonight. I'm going to give you four things. I'm going to keep eye contact while I'm telling you all of these things. And I'm going to say two things, which I think you probably should have. Then I'm going to go something which probably isn't selling very well on the menu. And then I'm going to say that that's the thing that I really prefer. Personally, my favorite. Um, they do all this thing. And I would say... How in the name of bejesus are they remembering all of these things without reading? I Thanks assume that basically they're all actors and they're yes! all out of business and they're all, every single person at any table could be an audition. Right, but it's that thing of that you suddenly realise that the only lines that they have to remember that day, because they haven't landed the part in Succession or Game of Thrones, is essentially what it is. You, it's not, it's not overstating to say that you went to L.A., for love and Cat's career and all of that. Yeah. We worked together on uh, a show called Fame Academy years ago. That was the BBC's attempt at uh, pop stars or pop rivals or whatever those things were called. As you know, there's a very old rule, never get your honey where you get your money. Not to start a relationship with your co-workers on primetime television. Yes, that's another way of putting it. So then it would have been her birthday. She was in LA. I was in a small pub called the uh, Mahara Inn, which is about 300 yards from my house in Ireland. With an eight hour time difference, I decided to text her, happy birthday, she texted me back, I rang her. She said, oh, it's a shame you're not around. She said, I'm having a birthday lunch uh, uh, tomorrow in the Beverly Hills Hotel. I said, I'll be there. And she said, go to sleep, Keelty, you're pissed. You're in Belfast at this point. I'm in Dundrum County Down. Your hometown. Home village, an hour south of Belfast, at two o'clock in the morning. And you've got to make it... This is impossible. What I did, got home, booked the seven o'clock flight the next morning, which was that day. Got on a taxi at five, got to the Georgie Best Airport at six, got on the seven o'clock flight, which gets into Heathrow Terminal five at 8.35. Normally gets in 10 past eight, was a Sunday. That worked out okay. First flight to LA with BA is always the 9.50. That goes in the C gates, the Belfast flight gets in on the A gate. No bags to check in, hand luggage only. The 10 past nine flight, with the eight hour time difference, gets you into LA at a quarter past one. Hand luggage only, first off the plane, first to passport control, you're through there at about 25 past one. Taxi on the street, get to the Beverly Hills Hotel at two o'clock. Her brunch had started, our lunch had started at one o'clock. Pulling up outside the Beverly Hills Hotel, I'm telling the taxi driver the story. And his words to me are, 
That's a pretty good story. Would you like me to wait? <laughs> uh, I walk into the polo lounge. Uh, she's having the McCarthy salad. Uh, I say, I'll have a gin and tonic. She falls off the chair and we've been together ever since. We should probably explain what a McCarthy salad is. Named after a polo player called Neil McCarthy. Now, in London, yes. it turned up... I mean, it looks hyper-organised, like someone with an, uh, an organising compulsion has been at the salad bar at Garfunkel's, mm. which is what I wrote in my review. And there are separate... Thank you, separate little pillows of beetroot and egg white and egg yolk and cucumber and tomato and then in the middle an avocado that's been halfway through uh, one of those egg slices and so it's fanned yeah and then on the side there was uh, a balsamic an overly emulsified balsamic dressing which looked a little bit like gravy and they presented this to us with much sort of performance and then they mixed it and it it really looked like someone had had a bit of a problem. How does it look at the Polo Lounge in Beverly Hills? Is it that much better? I find the best place to eat the McCarthy salad is whenever you're actually in a booth beside Leonardo DiCaprio who doesn't know that you've actually heard him discuss the Oscar-winning speech that he thinks he's going to be making for Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Because he'd actually won, I think it was the uh, was it the Golden Globe. So he'd won the Golden Globe, and he assumed the Oscar was coming down the chute, and he discussed his speech. There was he was discussing, you know, what he may or may not. Yeah. Oh, things have turned up. Do you know what? I'm going to hold for a moment. Yeah. Which one is this, Otto? So here we have a lobster souffle. And mine is a scallop. So you've got a, a, a goat's cheese souffle. I have a goat cheese souffle, but. And there's a lobster souffle, and then this is uh, a scallop which has been baked in with pastry and uh, Reuben here who is helping Holy Otto. Holy Mary, mother of moly. So here you have lobster. Yeah. That's a lobster sauce. And the lobster sauce, obviously. And then that lobster sauce also goes on the scallops. Well, I'm very efficient here. I'm going to do some Merceau with this. Oh, wow. Patrick, you like taste it? That's pumpkin. Yeah, sauce. yeah, yeah. Are you OK with the Merceau? Which is a nice, clean, elegant mess. What's Kat doing today? A bit more than she thinks. <laughs> <laughs> a bit more than previously Very thought, important. once the Merceau yeah. turns up. You've made a new documentary for the BBC. I have. On Northern Ireland, 100 years. Mm -hmm. The full title is... Patrick Healy, 100 Years of Union. I, I watched it on iPlayer. Yeah. It's a fascinating documentary because it's you very emotionally, I may mm. say, looking at the, the, what's going on right now, partition on the island of Ireland. Now, in yes. 2018, you wrote an absolutely brilliant Twitter thread. If anybody wants to find it, Google your name, Patrick Keelty, Twitter thread, and they will find it immediately, which laid out what the implications of Brexit were for Ireland, for Northern Ireland, and so forth. You're nodding at me. And it yeah. was brutal and it was to the point and made it clear that nobody had really thought this through. The documentary, mm. were you constrained? Because there's very little in there echoing what you'd said in that Twitter thread about the failure of current government policy to think through the impacts of Brexit on Northern Ireland. Whenever I wrote that thread, that was whatever you do here. You're screwed. We're kind of screwed. You can still stand back in 2016 going, can't you see Brexit is not a good idea? Or you can actually go, we're five years down the road. How are these kids feeling and what can we do for them now? Because 
Brexit's not been reversed anytime soon. So the film for me was to go in there and say, how can we survive this rather than say what you've done on us to try mm. to make us survive is shit. Your restraint is amazing. Uh, this is really patronising. You're an extremely good journalist. I don't know if you ever intended to be a journalist, but you are. Okay. Uh, and your ability to stop, to let people speak and all of that and your restraint. Um, for background, and we will get there, and it's obviously a major part of your story, is mm. that you're, when you were 16, your father was murdered by loyalist terrorists. Mm. So to say you have skin in the game is something of a, an understatement. But you, at one point, go to the bonfire for marching season. You help build the bonfire, and you applaud it as it goes up. Yeah. Your empathy is amazing. If you look at the Northern Ireland story, you either have to have a Northern Ireland that functions for a minority of people, which is the Catholic population. Yeah. Or if you happen to constitutionally change the future of the place and it becomes a united Ireland, mm -hmm. then the minority is going to be those unionists. If you don't attempt to actually try to understand how somebody else feels, that, that's kind of what it's all about because five years goes goes like a flash. Yeah. 2016 Brexit, 2021, we're still here. 10 years, 15 years is a generation. How do you live the transition years? I wanted to go there to actually see what the good and the energy and the good things were in it. I see it as selfish. You see it as selfish to... I, I see it as selfish for me to go and try to understand something that's actually going to make me think in a different way. You seemed a lot more emotional, if I'm honest, oh. in this one than you did in the previous documentary. Which 100%. And uh, which was curious, because mm. the previous documentary was you, you know, um, my dad, the troubles, and me. Yep. Revisiting the fact of your dad apparently mm. being an innocent bystander who got murdered for no reason. Subsequently, you seem to have uncovered a reason which was that he was trying to object to a protection racket run by the loyalists. Mm. But actually in that one, you're, 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 you're quite, not chilly, but you're very, you're very straight up about everything. But in this one, you really did seem, despite at one point you actually do cry on camera. The tears in the second film are the despair that people who actually need a little bit of help rather than been given that help, have actually been asked to solve the puzzle that they've already solved, that they knew was impossible. And they've been handed a different puzzle, rather than been paraded around the town going, fuck, you solved that puzzle, oh my God. I was like, yeah, anyway, here's another one that we know you can't solve. So those were tears of despair. I've just pushed the lobster uh, souffle across to you because... It wasn't pushed away, was it? No, it wasn't pushed away. It was no. ta taken 
was taken undue. I'm interested particularly in, in one element that happens around the peace process, mm. which was you became friends with Mo Molum. Yes. Who was the Northern Ireland Secretary mm. and the Northern... Because what people, I think, don't necessarily understand is you have the Good Friday Agreement in 98. It takes until 2007 to actually get a power-sharing agreement. This is my point. Things take a long time. How do you live your life during that time? What do you do during that time? That fascinates me. She was an extraordinary figure, Mo mm. Molum. And mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if you're listening to this, you've, you know, you're not aware of her looker-up. Um, very charismatic. Mm. Did she not used to have extraordinary weekend house parties at her official residence? Yeah. Who, who would turn up at those house parties? New Labour was very good at the showbiz thing. Wasn't Graham one of them? Didn't Graham Norton go? Graham, you know, Paul O'Grady, there'd have been a lot of, you know, um, a lot of showbiz people. You know, what was interesting about it was, was that that was the Queen's official residence in Northern Ireland as a Catholic growing up in Northern Ireland. So I remember the first time she invited me and she went, Pat, you must come for, come, come for supper. And I said, okay. I said, so what should I wear? She went, well, Pat, I'm wearing some British Airways pajamas and I'm not fucking changing, so make your own mind up. And I'm thinking, she's probably joking. So, I mean, I put a shirt on, you know, the pair of trousers, lose the jeans, don't wear a jacket, you know, that kind of thing where I'm going to go sort of... Cat. What time is supper in, in this instance? Come at seven for drinks, dinner for eight. Right. right. And sure enough, you get through three, three lines of security and, you know, the RUC waves you through and, you know, you go through with the guns and all the rest. And there she is, she just comes out onto the gravel wearing the navy blue BA first-class first pajamas. pajamas, four sizes too big, right? a pair of furry slippers. <laughs> I said, you weren't joking? She went, I wasn't fucking joking. You don't know the day I've had. <laughs> and, and I remember... Um, I've had Martin McGuinness and, Arnie and yeah. Ian Paisley bang away at each other. So you'd sometimes come for a dinner, it would look like this. And then she'd say, sometimes come for dinner. And so you were in the private quarters where, the, where she was, and it was just a little table. And it was, it was you know, her and John. And, um, and I said, look, I said, my dad's brother was a uh, Green Beret, two tours of Vietnam, five Purple Hearts, was a spy in Berlin. His wife um, uh, worked in the Pentagon. Uh, she was in the Pentagon at 9-11 and her day was away on an away day and that's where that was meant mm. to go. So American military family, he was over visiting. And I said, um, I said, well, my uncle Eugene's over. I said, I, 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 you know, I, I can't come tonight. She went, fucking bring him. So suddenly you've got this American turning turn up, my uncle Eugene's six foot four. He then turns up with full American military deference to... Well, this is the Secretary of State, this is the British House of, uh, and there's the Queen. And there's a visitor's book. And Mo says to him, don't sign that page, sign this one, this will be fun. And so the, the Queen had signed on one of her official visits, she went, just sign there. That'll give them something to fucking sort out later on. They'll, they'll, <laughs> right? they'll go, who's this Eugene? Who's this Eugene below Elizabeth? So, you know, great, but... We could not have done what we did there without her because people talk about the dead cat strategy. You Throw know. a dead cat on the table to distract from everything else. Well, Mo just first meeting threw the wig on the table when she was meeting Sinn Féin. Because she was undergoing chemotherapy. She was undergoing chemotherapy. 
and people didn't know what to do. She disarmed people, metaphorically and literally. We couldn't have done that without her. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I watched your um, your first live at the Apollo. Yeah, two thousand and seven. Your material is I'm going to use the word astonishing because it's uh, a brilliant run on. I bet you miss the IRA now. Oh yeah, yeah. Because we were a better standard of terrorists. Yeah, yeah. We used to phone you up, have a wee chat, tell you where the bomb was and what time it would go off. And now you've got Al Qaeda. Well, what's amazing about that? It's two thousand and seven. It's only two years since 50-whatever people died in a bombing in central London. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure everybody knows that before you get on Live at the Apollo, somebody comes along and sees your act and sees that material somewhere else, mm -hmm. don't they? Mm -hmm. So it obviously had all been seen. Mm. Did you hesitate at any point to do that stuff? How can you hesitate to walk on stage in London and do material about something horrific whenever you live in another part of the United Kingdom that that entire country has been through the same thing and you're doing that material sometimes on the same day or the mm. day after? Two years later was nothing as far as you were concerned. Well, I mean, look, you know, Lenny Bruce said that, you know, comedy is tragedy plus time. I think that you have to be very, very careful about what are you making the joke about? This, you, I can just say the sound effect is actually Otto making my steak tartare. Yeah, it's a long is, process. It is a long process. But yeah, it's a good one. It's good. The, um, if you're making a joke about someone's opinions towards something bigger, then that's a valid joke. Yeah. And sometimes you get it wrong and sometimes you get it right. Did you get much of a, a response to that the next day? Do you remember it going out and then um, noise? No, weirdly. Weirdly, weirdly. <laughs> that is weird. Most of the noise was from British Muslims going, thanks. Thanks, because we're not that. Yeah. You know, that idea of being a Muslim and actually walking on a tube. And getting you, a seat because you've got a backpack. And on. getting a seat because you've got a backpack. When you're just going out to do your work and what you got in the backpack's your lunch. That was the reaction, weirdly, that I got from that in the same way that there was only two gates that an aeroplane could land at Heathrow Airport from Northern Ireland. I didn't know that. For years, right? And those were the only two places where you had two special branch. Standing to watch. Right. Now, if you were a man of a certain age, a young man in his 20s, traveling on his own, you were pulled in. And were you? 
course. Um, I'm just curious as to they get used to you coming through and going, oh, it's all right, it's just your man Keelty, you can let him through. I tell you what is funny, they got that used to it that I, when I started to host TV here, I remember going back to Belfast one morning. I've been hosting the big breakfast. It was the late 90s or early 2000s. The National Lottery had started. Des O'Connor was actually the original face of the lottery and he was going to Belfast. His costume lady was my costume lady. I walk into the airport, I'm in security. She's in front of me, Des O'Connor's there. Oh, Pat, nice to meet you. I love your stuff. I've seen you a few times. Oh, Des, everything's very pally. That's a very good Des O'Connor impersonation, right? if this, I may say so. This is Marcy and we're, everything's going great. Two of us put our bags through. The next thing, the security guy goes, Mr. O'Connor, Mr. Keeley, you might want to just, can you just come, which one of you guys owns this bag? We go through, round to the other side, and it's my bag, clearly. There's a handgun in the middle of the bag. What? And I'm going, it's the big breakfast props department. They know I'm flying back to Belfast. And Is this like some type of sick joke? So they put like a fake, gun in my bag and they turn to Des O'Connor and go do you know I've only just met Pat I'm not right <laughs> so from being like the showbiz pally pally Des is going I don't know who this Irish fucker is and just as it gets to that uncomfortable moment they hit this button underneath the machine and the gun disappears and they can actually for training exercises they can actually put certain objects into the bag so if you're training on the machine when you actually go through the airport you can ask this who's driving today so who's driving is the guy who's actually sitting there right looking at the bags they go through and they're doing it what uh, they they do that as a as a as a thing when you're training so you can actually run the machine so it's basically like the equivalent of you know being in the airplane simulator so then there's even like really more uncomfortable moment where Des now realizes there is no gun and he's gonna have to talk to me <laughs> after disowning me and sitting beside me in seats. He's in 1A and I'm in 1A. So you've got the real T-bone. I do. With oh, wow. uh, many things. I'll leave you that uh, truffle sauce here. You may want some if you. Thank yeah, you. If you want some extra truffle sauce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll leave your recipe here. You can put that on I'd love a wee bit more sparkling, please. Sparkling. Please, thank you very that much. Thank you, Otto. That's great. I hope you enjoy it. Gonna be tea. Yeah, wow. And what are these bad boys here? Pom these souffle. are Oh, pom souffle. Oh, my. These they take 45 minutes to make. It's the writing of comedy still... Torturous, yes. Well, it's a thing in your head. I mean, you're still... Mm. You, you still gig? Yeah. Do you feel a, an imperative to do a certain kind of comedy? I think if you're going to get up on stage, you have to have something to say. And I think you have to have something that interests yourself. Stand-up's a lonely thing. You know, the idea of a band going on tour, four or five of them, you can only fall out with yourself when you're doing stand-up. More than enough comedians have done that. 100%. 100%. So, and I also think there's a, there's a balance between being um, really hilarious and being sane. I'm quite sane and sometimes funny. I'm happy with that balance. 
Did the idea of doing the documentaries, mm. did it at the time seem like a, a, a nice diversion from the grind of writing comedy? There kind of comes a point where you have to try to tell the truth without the laugh. That's almost Beckett-esque, you know. As in a comedian who... As in Rob Beckett. Yes, Rob Beckett. Um, I was thinking Sam. Yeah. So I've heard you talk about the fact that, first of all, you chase the laugh, then you have to stop chasing the laugh and know that a bit of silence is okay. 100%. And then with the documentaries, you let the silence take over. So there's that thing of, there kind of just comes a point where you have to say, well, this is how it is. The anxiety in that is, is quite high. When most people think the anxiety of actually getting on stage with a quarter of an inch of microphone cable and saying, this is what I think is funny, what do you think? Mm. That's a high anxiety thing for other people. That's your comfort zone. 100%. Where can I buy me some of that? Don't make me go on the telly and tell the truth. Because the, these documentaries, there, there is a structure which is interact with someone and then you'll be immediately put on camera to say how you're feeling. Yeah. And it works very efficiently. I'm curious as to whether people around you at various times while you've been doing this have worried about you. But during the, during the shooting of the last one... Mm where you were going to a dark place, and mm. not just about the state of Northern Ireland, mm. but I think you were dealing with questions around the death of your own father, which you thought you dealt with but hadn't. Mm. That, that looked really hard. I don't think there's anything worth doing that isn't really hard. Was it really uncomfortable? Yeah. Uncomfortable stuff sometimes is what you think is gonna happen. Other times it's just stuff that hits you on the road. I didn't think that the moment I was gonna cry in that documentary was people here shouldn't have to do this twice. I wasn't prepared for that to be the breaking point. You can't sit there and ask someone to give you their honest story and not give yourself back. That's Damn. the empathy thing, which no, is intense. I, I don't see that as empathy. I just see that as being a fucking fraud if you, if you don't. Everybody struggles every day, you know? Were there people around you who were concerned about you? I think there were, weirdly. I think there were a lot of people who were more concerned about me than I was about myself. You know, sometimes it's that thing of you, you, you get on with stuff and process it later. I think after the documentary went out, <clears throat> was a bit of a... <sighs> when the first one went out, you went for a walk along the beach. Oh, I couldn't watch it. Is this one? Did you sit and watch it go out? Um, I did because um, I couldn't do anything else. Uh, I'm going to sort of take this full circle. Mm. You met Mel Brooks, didn't you? Mm. How did that happen and what was that? that I mean, it sounds like a non sequitur, but it's comedy and it's nerdy, neurotic people. So, neurotic Northern Irishman meets neurotic Jew. Mm. I was in LA, I had been talking to Radio 2 and uh, uh, they had said, you know, do you want to do some stuff with Comedy Heroes? And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk to a few people. I said, well, look, do you think you could get Mel Brooks? Went to his house, invited in, and you're sitting there, and out he comes in his sweatpants. When you interview someone like that, he has to know that you know. I mean, obviously a fan, 
But unless you got the detail, unless you've got his detail, he's not entertained. Meant to be half an hour, ended up there for an hour and a half. What was the detail? There's always one detail where the person goes, oh, okay, you've done your homework. The detail was that in the 1950s, he had written on a series that everyone had forgotten. And that was the making of him. Right. And I asked him what it was like to write on that. And the other detail was that when you're a comedy writer and you're directing people in your movies, at what point are you going, you're fucking up my line? It needs to be done like this. Or do you actually let them just get on with it? And he started to talk about Gene Wilder and everything else. And it, it was an incredible afternoon. It went to interview Steve Martin. And uh, how did that go? Steve Martin and Martin Short at a backstage at a winery in San Jose, at which point I was, I was petrified with Steve Martin because I thought he was going to be tricky and I thought Martin was going to be, ha-ha, ha-ha. It was kind of the other way around. Martin was the sort of slightly trickier one and Steve was much, you know, so you just never know. You never know what, sometimes what you're going to get. Well, I could say exactly the same, but I'm going to be honest <laughs> with you, Paddy Keelty, and say you were everything I hoped and more. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring the recording bit to an end now because otherwise four producers are stuck with 14 hours of tape. Oopsie. Uh, but I'm going to say is Paddy Keelty, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. There's still a tart tata in your future. Yeah, you did order that. No, I just actually think that could be my headstone. Do you think? <laughs> there's, there's a tart tata in my future. There's a tart tata in my future. Could be it. Could be it. That's a good point to finish. I think so. Yeah. Although we've got quite a lot of food in front of us. Thank you. Can't thank you enough, Jay. And I can assure you, we were there for long after the tape had stopped rolling. What a brilliant person Paddy is. Uh, a huge thank you to Otto for his outstanding hospitality. Do check out his restaurant Otto's on London's Grayson Road. Um, true classical French cooking with bells on. There really is nowhere else like it in the UK. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as ever, we would be delighted if you could leave us a review, maybe a star rating. Five? Would five kill you? I'm sure not. It really helps others to find us. Out to Lunch is a something else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording and mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Next time, it's Grammy award-winning singer-songwriter Gregory Porter. Didn't you once do a wedding and the only songs you knew were sad songs? Right. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I get on the microphone and What'll I do when you are far away and I am blue? What'll I do? I, wait a minute. Are they all breakup songs? Wait a minute. My book doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>